2 Chronicles chapter 7 and, uh, is where we're going to start, and then we'll read a verse in Isaiah 57 as well. So 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and then Isaiah 57, and, uh, and it, this may be a little bit of a predictable text this evening, and, and yet one that I, uh, we've been going through this series, this idea of worship on Wednesday nights, it's been sporadic this summer, obviously just with some of the things that we've had going on, and then my own, uh, my own travels as well, and uh, I don't know how much more we'll do, this may be the last one, but I, I couldn't really uh, talk about worship without dealing with this verse, talking about this verse here, and, uh, and so it's been on my mind, and, and honestly, um, uh, this year has been interesting um, you know, it's, it's fresh in my mind right now because I, I went to a camp, saw young people, the Lord do a real work in lives. Um, and, uh, you know, from the very first night, uh, there, were, there were just floods of decisions um, from the very first service, just like that. I mean, sometimes camp, it takes you a little while to warm up, and it may be Thursday night, but by the time young people start to move, well, these, these came ready, and they were moving. And it just got, it got me thinking about revival. What what is real revival and, and what does it look like um, to have revival? And it's been on my mind this year, especially because there have been some movements in other places, other parts of the country that have called themselves revival, you know, like the Asbury revival, if you heard anything about that. And, and I'm not up here to judge what was happening, um, but, but I also am a little bit skeptical about the sincerity or the genuineness of a movement like that, um, unless it's founded um, in the preaching of God's word, and and uh, it's hard for me to imagine a revival would simply be a moving of emotion with music. I'm not saying it's not it's not a, a genuine emotion, and I'm not saying that something didn't happen. Um, I just I I, t I think we ought to be a little bit skeptical. ...of anything that says, oh, this is a real revival... Um, ...when it seems like emotionalism is kind of driving some of those things. And we live in a country in which a lot of denominational movements are founded on emotion. Um, if you, if you uh, and I'm not going to get into all that, that's not in my notes, so I won't do it. Um, but, but I think what we have here in 2 Chronicles 7 um, is something of, and I try not to use this word much... ...but something of a recipe, something of a... Here are the qualifications for revival, and if these happen, um, then I will send revival. And, and so I want to read this verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, um, and you don't have to stand. Let's just read it together out loud. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, it starts with, if my people. Here we go. Ready? Begin. If my people... Yeah, and I think sometimes we view revival like a moving of emotion. Um, but I tend to view, view revival a little bit more practically than that. I tend to view revival as people responding to the truth of God. God's truth is presented and everyone responds like they're supposed to. Now, that ought to include some emotion. But if emotion isn't the key component, that's okay with me. Because the Bible, this verse doesn't say anything about emotion. 
It doesn't say that, that the right things come together and emotion is the primary definition of revival. I think when you get right with God, have you ever had real emotion when you got right with God? I have. I'm raising my hand. But I'm not saying that that's the primary driver. I think we should be a little concerned about that. And if, if the last few years, though, so I started thinking about this and started thinking about the country, the world that we live in. And if the last few years have revealed anything, it's become clear that our country is in a mess. Uh, we, are, we, we are in a mess. Uh, there, it's clearly the world, not just our country, but it's especially obvious to us because we have eyes on it. Uh, we're as politically divisive as we've ever been. I mean, the, the, the right and the left are further apart probably than they've ever been. Uh, you know, social media has caused things to be more divisive than they've ever been. Everybody has a voice. Everybody gets to share their opinion. Uh, crime is out of control. Our educational system is, let's just be honest, it's, it seems broken in a lot of places. I mean, there's all of these things. And, and long-term change, and I've said this before, and I've, I've heard this, it's not original, but long-term change won't come from the White House. It won't come from the courthouse. It won't come from the schoolhouse. Uh, long-term change, real change, comes from the church house. And without revival, then, we are in major trouble. And, and I believe that God longs for the opportunity to turn America around. And I'd love to be a part of and a witness to a great awakening at some point. Not just some emotionally driven, short-lived revival that some have claimed, you know, where God is moving and, and it's on a university campus, for instance. And I happen to believe that, that when the word is preached and people respond and get things right, that revival will start in a church. I believe that's where revival will take place. And Second uh, Chronicles then, 7 Chronicles 17, 714. Now you might say, well, this isn't a church. Um, and you're right, it's not a church, but it gives us insight into what God is looking for from his people. And yes, we, we aren't Israel. I believe there's a very distinct difference between the church and Israel. We don't claim every promise that Israel has. But one thing that you can get when you read the Old Testament is you can learn about God when you read the Old Testament. Because God is immutable, God does not change, and so the things that we read about what God is looking for from his people, that hasn't changed. Whether you're called Israel or whether you're called a church, if you are God's people, he is looking for the same things from us as he was looking for Israel. Now, he fulfills his promises differently for us, um, but, but I think he's looking for the same things from us. So when it comes to revival, thinking about revival here and worship, how are they connected? Well, God gives a call and he actually gives a command for revival. He gives a, a call and a command to turn and return to him. Uh, what does he say here is required if we're going to be revived or we're going to return to the Lord? He says, if my people which are called by my name, so they are genuinely believers, the first thing he says is shall humble themselves. Humble them, our, we need to humble ourselves. And we are a proud people. And, and maybe because we equate, some, maybe sometimes we equate humility with weakness. And we say, well, I don't want to be humble because that's weak. And we live in America and our, our motto is don't tread on me. And we say, you know, we're American. Nobody tells us what to do. We have this issue with pride. 
and humbling ourselves is, is not for the faint-hearted. It's not easy. I mean, just think about it. When you have had to humble yourself because you did wrong and you had to go to somebody and humble yourself and admit that you did wrong and ask forgiveness, how many of you just skipped with joy at the opportunity to have to humble yourself and admit you were wrong and ask forgiveness? Nobody likes to do that. We are so stubborn. We are so stiff-necked. We are so full of pride. I preached a message on pride at camp. And I do think we could preach about pride every week. It could be our primary application. You know, on Wednesday nights in our, in our time of... I just want you to think not just the hum, humility on a personal level. Think about humility on a corporate level. Think about on Wednesday nights. We just did this. Um, at times of corporate prayer, I believe it's good for us to bow. I encourage bowing. We've, we've even looked at it from scripture as a part of, of worship, but it's uncomfortable for some still. And, and I understand if there are physical limitations, um, but I think the reservations are due, for many, due primarily to the fact that publicly bowing and humbling ourselves is unnatural. It's vulnerable. It's not part of our culture. You know, we don't bow very much. Seems like the only time you hear about um, people bowing is when our um, overly intelligent leaders bow to the, at the wrong time to the wrong person to some, you know, foreign dignitary. You know, and that seems like the only time bowing gets any coverage. Um, unless you go to a mosque in Sioux Falls. Or unless you go to a, a neighborhood with a lot of those of the Islamic faith. Because bowing is not foreign to them. Bowing is a part of their religious culture. They have no problem being vulnerable. They have no problem humbling themselves uh, before their God. It seems to be unnatural to, in our culture. It's unnatural in our thought process. But remember though, the primary element of worship involves bowing. It's the most biblical form of worship. I'm not saying that you can't worship unless you bow. I am though saying that if you are going to talk about worship, you have to talk about bowing if you're going to be biblical about it. It's true humility will never uh, will forget perception and, and comfort level. And what is natural, though, if you are honestly humble, then you will no longer be thinking, what are people going to think about me? If you're honestly humble before God, then you won't, be, you won't say, well, this is outside my comfort zone. If you're truly humble, you won't think, well, that's unnatural. No, because a response to worship, a response to God in humility is bowing. And I want to remind you, too, that what God does for the humble, he gives grace to the humble. And it does, it, it does not say that, that we pray first or seek his face first... Or to turn from our wicked ways first. No, the first thing that he says we need to do in order to experience a God, uh, God turning us and changing us and doing something great in us is that we are humble. The second thing that he says in verse 14, if we humble ourselves and pray. Now, prayer is hard work. This is another one of those things we could talk about every service. Because I don't know that any of us would stand up and say, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be in my prayer life. I think we would all say, no, here's me, here's where I need to be, the gap is pretty big. It's way too big 
for my comfort level. And I, we could talk about prayer every service and we probably could respond every service. I, it's not that people don't want to be right in their prayer life, but effective prayer is hard. And it probably is a Christian's most difficult and yet most important work. Uh, at the Ministry Sharpening Conference, Brother Clifton Miser from First Baptist Church of Inglewood, he was speaking and, and the whole time he was talking about prayer and I felt this big the whole time. I mean, I, I, was, I was just that, I mean, I just was so convicted and so humbled and felt so bad. And, you know, it's hard though. Prayer is hard because of our flesh. It's hard because we have an enemy that's against us praying. And folks, we need to get serious about prayer. I'm thankful for men's prayer meeting, and, and I think it has helped our church. I, I'm thankful for the guys that come out on Sunday mornings, and I'm not saying if you don't come out that, that you're not right, and I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if you, our church has been helped by that ministry every week. First service of the day on Sunday mornings, it's helpful. Um, and I, I think it's helpful when we gather on Wednesday nights and we pray and we have a time of prayer. I want our church to be known as a house of prayer. That's what the Bible says we ought to be known as. But sometimes I wonder, okay, we're reading a list, we're praying through some things. Where's the urgent prayer? Where's the prayer we are honestly, without somebody having to give me a list, I am seeking the face of God. I'm crying out to God no matter who hears me. I'm seeking for God. I'm calling for him. I'm crying for him. I'm begging for him. We should be known as a house of prayer. But sometimes I wonder how accurate is that for Eastside Baptist Church. We have times of prayer. But is it fervent prayer? Is it real prayer? Is it, is it effective prayer? He says humble ourselves. We must pray. Then he also says, we must, says seek God's face. When we humble ourselves and pray, we are taking steps toward God's face. Reminds me of Moses who had the desire to see God's glory. And it should be our prayer that we get a fresh spiritual glimpse of God from our knees in prayer. Notice it's not about seeking God's hand. We don't come looking for a handout. We come seeking his face because it's about closeness with God. It's about having a relationship with God, not getting resources from God. But sometimes I think we pray, God, give me this, God, give me this, God, give me this. And on our mind is resource, 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 when really uh, we should be praying, God, help me to see you, help me to draw close to you, help me to have a relationship with you. And sometimes I think we're imbalanced over here asking for things rather than just seeking God's face. He says, seek God's face. And he says also, turn from our wicked ways. And I think of the hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. He says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Can you imagine leaving a God as great as our God? But I'm prone to wonder, folks. I, I mean, I know I'm the pastor. I'm just going to be transparent. I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone, I'm prone to leave the God that I love. I'm prone to do what I ought not, not do. And you say, well, boy, you're disqualified except that I think we're all in that same position. And Paul said in Romans 7, who the greatest, besides Jesus Christ, he's the greatest Christian that's ever lived, in my opinion. And he said, the, wood that I, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil which I would not, that I do. That's the Apostle Paul. We're all in the same boat. And, and so can you honestly then sing with knowledge and understanding of who God is compared to who you are without feeling this small? Without feeling contrite, without feeling 
uh, sinful and at times even in tears it seems. That when we consider who God is and his holiness and who we are in our sinfulness, I don't feel like I can come before him. My emotions tell me you don't deserve this. You know, my heart tells me you don't belong here. But, but what we see here is that God says you may not belong here in your sinfulness, but I want you here because of my grace. This is God's prescription to have our sins forgiven and see our land healed. And it absolutely cannot be done in our strength. God's grace was for them and it is for us absolutely necessary to, if we ever want to pray effectually and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. And it leads then to the question tonight, how, how does this connect, how do worship and revival connect? What's the connection? Well, knowing that prayer and seeking God's face and turning from our wicked ways is a tall order. We cannot help but consider whether it can even be done. I mean, can, can this even be done? Should we just throw up our hands in defeat and let come what may? Well, of course not. You know, more than once I've had conversations with people, and you've probably had these kind of conversations before, is that can America have revival? And I'm not sure that's the right question. I think the right question is, can God's people have revival? Can you have revival? Because I don't know about America, but what I see here in 2 Chronicles 7 is if I will obey what God says, he will turn to me. I'm not saying he's going to make it all about me. But he will, he will do something in my life if I will follow what his word says I should be, do, I should be doing. And the question then is, why don't we desire revival? Some may look back to the days of great evangelists and say, well, where are the great evangelists? And where's that kind of preaching? And there's a lack of revival because we don't have the right preaching and because our culture out there is so wicked. But I want just consider Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. You have these variables there and the seed is the word of God uh, the sower is the preacher which is Jesus the soil represents the four kinds of hearts you've got hardened hearts and you've got rocky soil you've got thorny soil you've got good soil and I think we need to go back to understand there's nothing wrong with the seed the word of God is as pure and right and inerrant and infallible as it's ever been there's also nothing wrong with the sower because Jesus Christ does all things well. So the one variable that is the problem is the soil. Because the, the fruitfulness of the seed is not dependent on whether or not the sower does his job. He will do his job. No, the fruitfulness of the seed is dependent on the condition of the soil. It's the condition of the hearts of men and women and children that makes the difference. That's the variable. And so when we consider 2 Chronicles 7, we see that the verse does not place the burden of action on the prophets. And it doesn't place the burden of action on the word. It doesn't place the burden of action on God. It places the burden of action on God's people. It's the heart condition that is our problem. And I believe it comes down to a lack of humility before God. I think it's because at the very beginning he says humble ourselves and we don't. God's heart is moved by the humble and his endless supply of grace is available to the humble. One of the greatest verses. Turn over, keep your place here 
in 2 Chronicles 7. Isaiah 57 is one of the great verses of the Bible. I know it seems strange to say, you know, this verse is great as opposed to others that aren't. No, I mean, the whole word is great, but this is one of those that really gets your attention. Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. So I want you to notice the, um, the uppercase letters here. So when it's uppercase, who do you think it's talking about? It's talking about the Lord. It's talking about God. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell, this is what he says, I dwell in the high and holy place. Now, we could stop there and say that's a good verse. Uh, it, this is the high and holy, the lofty one who inhabiteth eternity. I, I mean, I dwell in the highest of places. I mean, I am holy. I dwell in eternity. That's where God would dwell, right? I mean, that's where we would expect. And we would expect the verse to stop right there because we would say that nobody else deserves to be where God is. He's high, he's holy, he's perfect, he's all-powerful, he's incredible. I can't think of any other um, adjectives that describe him um, appropriately. He's that great. But it says, For thus, thus saith the high and holy one that hath it eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. But look what it says, With him also that is of a contrite spirit, a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble... And to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Here's God and he dwells in a place you and I could never dream of going. Except that he says you can dwell there. And all I ask is a humble spirit. All I ask is that you are humble before me. And if you're humble before God, folks will be humble with each other. I don't know about you, but in my life, if I'm full of pride with other people, it's because I'm, I'm not where I'm supposed to be with God. And it shows up in how I deal with other people. He says, if you'll be humble, and if you will have not just a lower view of yourself, but no view of yourself. I mean, you're that humble before God, before people, then I will revive your hearts. And not only that, those that are of a contrite spirit and contrition is when you have sinned, that you are willing to confess your sin and admit that you're a sinner and say, I know what I am. I know who I am. I am nothing and I'm a wicked sinner. And if God wanted, he could stomp me out just like that. He says, if that will be your, your, your spirit, and blessed are they that mourn, the Bible says. And when it says they that mourn, it's not talking about at a funeral. It's talking about when you sin before God, that you don't say, oh, well, no big deal. No, you say, no, he's a holy God, and he loves me, and he cares for me. How could I do this to him? That should be, that's a contrite spirit. And he says, if you will have a spirit of humility and a spirit of contrition, you can dwell with me in the high and holy place. You can have, you can have sanctuary with the, with the holy God of heaven where none of us deserve to be. But he'll let you go if you're humble. 
If you're contrite over your sin and you, you don't blow it off like it's no big deal and you say, no, my sin is a big deal. It's offensive to God and he's holy. I can't imagine that I would do that before him and I must confess that. No, that's you can dwell with, with God with a contrite and humble spirit. And he wants to revive us. He wants to turn us. He wants to make us different. Listen, the most significant mark of God's people is, is God's presence. And we, cannot have, we can't have God's presence if we don't have humility. He doesn't dwell closely with those who are proud. He doesn't dwell with those who Monday through Saturday walk the line of sin. And walk in on Sunday and think a suit cancels it all out. Those who are dabbling with things that we ought not be dabbling with um, during the week and then walking in on Sunday and thinking, well, if I sing the song the way I'm no, I know I'm supposed to up here on the platform, people will think I'm good and, and then that's it. That's all I need to cancel it all out. No, we must have a contrite spirit about our sin. Just be humble about it. And it's only a contrite and humble person that God's presence can be near. Listen, that is a mark of distinction for us. It's not this building. This building's beautiful. But that's not our mark of distinction. It's God's presence. It's not our worship style. I, I'm thankful that we have a distinct worship style in a, in a culture where all churches are, are, I think, trying to draw from the world and we're trying to do what we think God would be pleased with. I'm not saying it's all perfect. We're trying to figure it out and do the best we can. Um, but we ought not take so much pride in that that we think, well, that's what's our distinction. No, our distinction should be the presence of God. It's not in our website. It's not in our events. It's not in the things that we look at and say, oh, these are the sharp things about us. No, it should be God's presence that sets us apart. And according to James, then, if we draw nigh to God, he draws nigh to us. But we can't draw nigh to God without humility. And without humility, we can't have God's grace. So we can conclude, then, that God dwelling with us means we have his grace. It's a big circle. To have God's grace is to have God's presence. And that's a wonderful, invaluable, indispensable truth that we ought to seek at all times. Regardless of the condition of man or nation, understand this. God's grace levels the playing field. No matter the magnitude of the sin factor, God is simply looking for contrition and humility. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church. It doesn't matter if you have flaws out, I mean, just coming out everywhere. If you have a humble and contrite spirit before God, then you have his grace. And if you have his grace, you have his presence. And if you have his presence, then you can have revival. It's available. And, and people think, oh, it's going to take years to get to revival. No, all it takes is God's grace. And if you are humble before God, you can have God's grace just like that. So that means revival's not that far away. If Eastsiders would all, all at the same time, listen, if we would all at the same time be broken over our sin and humble before God, I believe revival's available tonight. God's grace is available tonight. His presence is available tonight. 
Can you be humble tonight before God? Yes. Can you be contrite tonight before God? Yes. Can you be broken over your sin? Yes. Can you get as low as you can before God tonight? Yes. Then revival's available. And I'm not saying it's a big emotional sweeping through the sanctuary. I mean it's that we all at the same time are tired of our sin before God, tired of our pride before God, and come before him and say, God, I humble myself, I'm broken over my sin, would you revive me? Revival's available. But I really believe that pride is the problem. Standing in the way of revival is pride. It's the opposite of humility. I believe it's the worst of all sins. It robs us of the power to conquer other sins. God's presence and grace are available to the humble. And his power is available to the humble. According to what Christ told Paul when he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul said, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, grace leads to God's power, but without humility, we can't have God's grace. Pride not only robs us of grace, it brings resistance of God to to us, that he resists the proud. How can we have revival when God is working against us? We must have a humility that opens the door for grace. And what more truly sincere humility? Here's the connection. What more truly sincere humility is there than worship? If pride is our problem and humility is the answer, it's the key that opens all these doors. If humility is the answer and worship, I'm telling you, worship is as humble as you can get before God. So before you think that worship is just kind of a peripheral of the Christian life, no, worship is at the core of the Christian life because worship is humility and humility brings God's grace and God's grace brings his presence and his presence brings revival. Worship. Worship is the key. Worship is humility. I believe we need a revival of public worship. Which in turn may be the beginning of true revival in our church and in our country and our families. And it may be that we've become so secular we assume, well, we're doing it right because we have all the material things. Except air conditioning tonight, (laughs) apparently. Hopefully we paid that bill. You know, but the rich have material things. Doesn't mean they're humble before God. See, it's only when God's people have a vision of God like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 when he was absolutely at the end of himself and humble. What would you be willing to to pay for revival? I mean, I I would give everything I had if honestly we could have a genuine revival. If revival could be bought, I believe great sacrifices would be made financially by God's people. I think any of us would say we'd be willing to give up a lot for revival. If revival actually came about, great changes would result. And here's the, think about, follow this. We'd be in awe of how great God is if he, if he, did a, if he brought about revival in our church. We'd be in awe. Uh, we'd be just amazed at what he did. And what would we do in return? What's the first thing we would do if God did an incredible work of revival? You know what we would do? We would worship. We'd have no problem getting on our faces and worshiping God if he brought a revival to Eastside Baptist Church tonight. So why not turn the order around? 
And if God granting revival would bring us to a point of worship, why not humble ourselves before the Lord, before the revival? You see, if we would do that, we'd have his grace, which would give us the desire and ability to pray effectually and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways and thus have revival. So there's no reason to wait for worship. If the true humility involved in worship would bring about revival, why wait to worship? Start with humility. Give God an opportunity to do what only he can do. Revival comes to the humble, yet we operate as if we'll be humble once revival comes. No, let's do what we know leads to revival. Let's not wait on God. Let's show him we are serious about worship. We know from Christ's own lips what the Father seeks. He seeks worship. He sighed, will he find it here? If he does, what's preventing him from pouring out his spirit in a special way that leads to revival? I believe uh, it can only take place when 100% of God's people are willing to humble themselves before each other and God and be contrite before the Lord about their sins. Teenager, tonight you might be the one person preventing a great move of God in this place because of your pride. You, you might be the one person tonight because you are too proud to submit to your parents. You might be the one reason that Eastside Baptist Church doesn't have a revival. I don't think that's a burden any of us want to carry. Husband, you might be the one preventing revival because of the hidden sin that's deep within your heart. You must be contrite about your sin if we want revival. Wife, you might be the one preventing God's work because of a seed of bitterness or resentment or lack of forgiveness. I mean, I could go in every category of, per, of people tonight and say, you might be the one. Don't be the one. I mean, we think, well, it's so hard to get revival. No, it's not. Be humble before God. Be contrite before your sin and you have his grace. Then to turn from your wicked ways and seek his face and have revival. It's a choice is what I'm saying. It's a choice to humble yourself and be contrite about your sin. Will you be, though, the one Eastsider who holds on to sin and prevents revival? Will you be the one who won't humble yourself and make things right with a brother or sister in Christ? Will you be the reason revival doesn't come here? And will it, come because, will it not come because you're unwilling to humble yourself? Don't be the one. Humble yourself. Turn from your wicked ways and seek God and pray and worship. And worship and revival are so very closely connected. You cannot have revival without worship. So let's get serious about worship. Are you willing? Here's a better question. Do you want revival? I think, I think all of us tonight would say, I want revival. But not all of us tonight, maybe, are willing to humble ourselves in the way that God's, God asks us to. And so tonight, let's just ask the Lord. Say, God, would you give me revival? You don't have to do it for somebody else. Just do it for yourself. And if 100% of Eastside Baptist Church would humble ourselves before each other and our God and be contrite about our sin rather than complacent or uh, put up with it or just let it slide, get things right before God, then it's possible that the God of heaven will look at us Give us his grace, give us his presence, and allow us then to humble ourselves, seek his face, 
turn from our wicked ways and let our spiritual lives be healed tonight. It's possible. I mean, I, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily expect it on a Wednesday night, but to me, it's probably a Wednesday night crowd where revival is really going to start. Sunday mornings, we have a lot of folks here and guests here, but chances are they're not ready to humble themselves like a Wednesday night crowd would be. But why not? Why not a Wednesday night? Why not um, June, July 26th? 90 degrees outside, 90 degrees inside. I mean, these are the revival. Set my soul afire. I mean, why not? You know, and you can't force, and I don't want to force something to happen, but I don't want to be the reason it doesn't. So I'm telling you tonight, my spirit is, God, I want to humble myself before you. And if there's any sin in my life, I want to be contrite about it tonight. Because I don't want to be the reason that God can't do what he wants to do at Eastside Baptist Church. Let's stand together. Every head bowed. We won't have music tonight. We'll just, let's just, in silence if needed, I'm going to ask you tonight, are you willing to humble yourself and be contrite before God? Don't be the one. Don't be the one. Let's just, in silence, seek the Lord and ask him to do work. Ask him to do... Help me be a reason that revival can happen, not a reason that it won't. Let's just do business with the Lord tonight.